Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to our Regenerative Medicine Focus Issue podcast. We thought it might be interesting to have um, someone come in and have a conversation about developing stem cell therapies uh, on the industry side, someone who has experience doing that. So we invited Anthony Davies in. He's, um, he's trained as a biochemist, chemical engineer, and a molecular biologist, but he's also worked in the cell and gene therapy fields for uh, about 20 years, including positions at uh, Onyx, Geron, and Capricorn. And he's now the president of Dark Horse Consulting, which is a, a boutique firm focused on CMC and product development issues in cell and gene therapy. So that's what we did. We had him in. We had a nice talk. We discussed Jaron's interaction with the FDA, uh, the interest in stem cell therapies from pharma, from big pharma, or maybe lack thereof. And we discussed um, CIRM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Yeah, so that's it. If you're ready, then, then we're ready. So here's your podcast with Anthony Davies. So I started my uh, professional career as a research scientist, and uh, I was convinced that that was what I would be for all of my life. And when I moved to California over 20 years ago, uh, it was at about that time that I realized I really wasn't so good at that as I, as I thought I was uh-huh. going to be. And uh, I was surprised to find this thing called the biotech industry existed in California, uh, in, in, for want of a better description, Silicon Valley. And I was able to join the biotech industry in the mid-90s, which was a very exciting time for it. So I have spent uh, all of the subsequent time in a corporate environment. Obviously, the goal of drug development, whether it's small molecule drugs or large molecule drugs, biologics or cell and gene therapies, the goal is to take those uh, drugs through the FDA uh, towards the approval process. And that has been uh, the majority of my work. My PhD uh, is an engineering PhD, so I naturally gravitated to solving problems in scale-up and of manufacturing mm-hmm. and process development problems, analytical development problems to characterize the, these products. And that has been the focus of my field within, uh, within cell therapy companies. Uh, there is a widespread and correct perception uh, that cost-effective, scalable manufacturing of these, uh, this novel uh, entire category of drugs is problematic, and unless these problems are solved, uh, the field will develop very slowly. Uh, what I want to talk about today, and I hope you do too, is the human embryonic stem cell field, 
how we get drugs approved, how we get drugs through the FDA, how this process, which has been a little troubled in the past, might get smoother. And I think the first thing we want to talk about is um, if you're advising companies today on how to get a embryonic stem cell product ready to go for a phase one trial, um, what would the advice be? The best advice that be- can be given to any drug development program looking to file an IND and initiate a phase one trial is not to think about the IND and the phase one trial, but instead to think about the BLA, commercial approval, the phase three trial, and launch of the product. The cliche is to begin at the end, Mm -hmm. or think about the beginning with the end in mind. This is more true for cell and gene therapies, and certainly for stem cell therapies, than it is for almost any other category of drug. That's a good question. The reason for that is because the problems of scaling production of these drugs have not completely been solved, and the problem of cost-effective scaling of production of these drugs has also not uh, completely been solved. And this translates in the future uh, to significant reservations about the ability of the healthcare system to reimburse these drugs and about the ability of the biotech industry to supply these drugs for some of the very large, some of the very impressively large indications uh, for which they are being developed. For example, cardiovascular indications uh, with hundreds of thousands of patients a year. When investors and potential pharmaceutical partners look at these programs, they will ask whether it is possible to manufacture hundreds of thousands of doses a year and uh, to distribute them uh, widely and not just through tertiary care centers, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, They will ask that question, and uh, it it is difficult at the moment to provide concrete answers uh, to that question for many drugs in many cell therapy, stem cell drugs, in early phase development. The other question they will ask is, can this scaled manufacturing be performed in a cost-effective manner? Because the the competition with small molecule drugs, with uh, relative... So you're asking this for for pricing purposes? Absolutely. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, If a small molecule drug goes head-to-head with a cell therapy at the moment, uh, it's no contest. So cell therapies are essentially being forced into niches where small molecule drugs or relatively inexpensive surgical interventions cannot compete with them. And that is uh, you know, that in itself is problematic for the industry because it perhaps sometimes uh, causes companies to look at indications for phase one trials uh, which are not necessarily do not necessarily have um, a strong pharmacoeconomic justification for commercialization. So you're saying that these stem cell products, their only way that they would ever have some sort of advantage would be a huge efficacy boost, and we have not yet seen that. Yes, either a huge efficacy boost or a huge uh, boost in uh, in pharmacoeconomics, and they're one of the least likely categories of drugs to provide the latter. So, yes, this efficacy boost is really what's being sought. So are there any ways around that? as far as the um, manufacturing of these products goes? As far as the manufacturing of these products go, then yes, I think all of the engineering problems are solvable. Um, We like to use the phrase, we we do work on products where there is a clear engineering path to scalability and approval. Uh, But the, the 
investments that are needed in solving these problems are not always factored in to development programs uh, at the time of an IND. You can get INDs filed. The FDA is not going to stop you uh, filing an IND with a cost-ineffective process. Mm -hmm. That is not the FDA's problem. And many biotech companies have been successful in raising enough money to do that. Problems then emerge when early-stage trials start rolling out, and the reality of what will be required for a Phase two trial or a Phase three trial with hundreds and then thousands of patients emerge, and uh, lack of interest at that point from pharmaceutical partners and from investors uh, can be very problematic uh, to the, the drug's progress. So I think the, 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 the plea is for uh, entities which are submitting INDs to think through these problems a little more, uh, perhaps delay the filing of the IND until the pharmacoeconomics has been better justified, uh, potency of the drug and its mechanism of action are better understood, and uh, the scalability of manufacturing has been better established. But that could be, you know, that could be a decade from now. I think uh, the the biotech industry has suffered from uh, the perception that relatively minor delays are completely unacceptable. I think also now that with uh, funding initiatives such as CIRM's initiative in California, uh, that there is sufficient funding to bridge that gap better. A one-year delay in an IND which results in a significant reduction in the cost of goods of a product, Mm -hmm. or in, and I don't want to overemphasize the manufacturing issues, or in great clarification of the mechanism of action of a product, Mm -hmm. or in um, development of better characterization methods to assure that during scale-up the potency of the drug is maintained, will uh, repay dividends in multiple years down the road and in unimaginable amounts of dollars which otherwise would have been wasted. Well, let me ask you this question, and I hope the answer is, well, we'll just see what your answer is. But So if I came to you and I said, look, I want to start an embryonic stem cell company, would you tell me that now is a good time to do it? I think now is a a great time to do it. I think now is always a good time to do it. Um, the technological window opens and closes on various technologies. Um, I can give several reasons why now is a good time to do it. One is that in contrast perhaps with uh, 10 or 12 years ago at the outset of the human embryonic stem cell field, there now exist many embryonic stem cell lines with excellent provenance. The earliest uh, embryonic stem cell lines did not have perfect provenance. And there are many drugs in development of various companies now based on these cell lines with less than perfect provenance. And one of the big question marks about these development programs is whether these cell lines ultimately will be acceptable for approval. The FDA and EMA and other regulatory bodies around the world have given no concrete guidance on that matter. So if you are running a biotech company set up 10 years ago using one of the earliest human embryonic stem cell lines and you are progressing through clinical trials, you are wondering if, if all of your trials are successful, your cell line's fundamental provenance and origin is going to be acceptable uh, for commercial approval.
my personal opinion is that the regulatory bodies are waiting and there is no they see no need to give a concrete guidance at this point. One of two things will happen. Either the early provenance-based products will be successful. Uh They will show this efficacy boost that you referred to earlier, uh, in which case it will be extremely hard for regulatory bodies to deny approval unless there was some very material, obvious lack of safety uh, or something else problematic with the product. That's one possible outcome. The other possible outcome is that the Generation 2 cell lines with excellent provenance that I refer to, that uh-huh. when you start your company today, you will be able to use, they will leapfrog the old products. And then the FDA and the EMA will not have to make that decision right. because uh, it will have been made f- for them and the original generation of products will, will die out and uh, will, with hindsight, uh, be have seen to be a poor investment. Yeah. Which of those outcomes occurs, I really don't know. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you. For observers, um, we don't have a long history to look back on in this field. Yeah, We have one basic one, which is Geron's IND filed in, I think, 2009. And from the outsider's point of view, um, it was problematic. Uh, the FDA didn't necessarily seem to know um, what it wanted from this company. Um, there was a clinical hold, I think, twice, uh, and eventually... Geron um, had five patients in the trial, and they stopped for business reasons, as far as as far as I can tell. What learn? What lessons can we learn from that? Are there lessons to be learned from that situation? Do you think the FDA has moved beyond that now? They know a little clearer what they want. I think the FDA provided perfectly acceptable guidance to Geron, and um, all of this is is public record. Uh, Geron itself uh, initiated the uh, the more significant clinical hold, uh, which was after the approval of the IND, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, some new preclinical data emerged, uh, which Geron uh, correctly decided needed further evaluation and the introduction of further controls to guard against any possible uh, bad effects of the product on the patients. And that process uh, rolled out smoothly. There was no uh, untoward delay. There was no um, problematic uh, interaction with the FDA. Um, This stuff happens. When new data comes in, you evaluate it, and sometimes that will cause you to want to stop a trial. Sometimes it will cause you to want to pause a trial, as was the case here. Mm And sometimes uh, it will have no impact on the trial uh, whatsoever. So I think the, uh, the the perception that something problematic was going on is 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 exaggerated. Um, I think the uh, it was an example of the trials and tribulations of drug development. I think during that period of time, countless oncology trials with small molecules came on hold, went off hold, were were stopped, continued, uh, and so forth. But obviously. Um, you know, Geron's just stood out because they didn't have the same. Yeah, they didn't have the same level of uh, media interest. Yeah, uh, partly because of the political interest in the in the derivation of embryonic stem cell uh, lines, and partly because the uh, the indication being studied, spinal cord injury, is an emotional indication uh, where there's a very obvious uh, lack of uh, acceptable treatment options yeah. for patients. Yeah, the other thing, this is also public record, but that the IND was something like more than 20,000 pages, which suggested that, uh, well, that's a ton of work for the company, number one, and an incredible cost, and two, that maybe the FDA wasn't entirely sure what information it needed to gather. 
Would that process be smoother today? Yes, I think it would. Uh, I think the yeah the IND was considerably more than twenty thousand pages. Yeah. Um, the, the the size of the IND uh, was not driven by the FDA. It was driven by Geron. Um, those of you familiar with IND filings will know that much of the 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 weight of paper comes from study reports, and the studies were involved and so on and so forth. So I think you know structurally. Uh, the IND was no more complex than an average uh, IND, certainly no more complex than an average cell or gene therapy uh, IND. I think that um, some of the FDA's comments on the IND uh, were good comments and have now been absorbed by the industry. Uh, Obviously, individuals who worked on that IND are now working for different companies and uh, that information will be useful and, and will be uh, usable to focus future INDs. But again, that's really part of the natural progression. I, w- I would love to uh, take a look at the first IND file for a monoclonal antibody and see how it looked and see how it looked relative to the next five INDs filed for monoclonal antibodies. And uh, I think uh, there will be relatively few surprises in that progression if you'd studied the the Geron IND and the next few INDs, the ACT IND, and the next few uh, embryonic stem cell INDs uh, around the world. You know, that that leads to an interesting point, and this is something you and I talked about earlier, but um, monoclonal antibodies were, uh, they had their initial run and then were sort of, um, they were shut down for a bit until the technology moved along, and now we have what we all know is a booming industry. And so that, that has been compared to other areas. It's been, it's been compared to antisense. It's compared to stem cells. That, that might be what's happening here. Stem cells um, are finding their way and eventually will look more like the monoclonal antibody field. Uh, is that something that you believe? I would love for the uh, stem cell field to look like the monoclonal antibody field in in a, in a decade's time. When monoclonals were developed, um, the, the Genentech, Biogen, Amgen group of companies, uh, a couple of interesting observations there. All the FDA asked for was more data. One of the issues was contamination of products with host cell DNA. Mm -hmm. This happened at a time when the concept of an oncogene was being consolidated and the Varmus Nobel Prize was being awarded. And there was a lot of sensitivity that large pieces of DNA might be oncogenic to patients. Subsequently, this is, this is not a view which is, is now thought to have been reasonable, but at the time it was completely understandable. And for example, um, the FDA asked Genentech for huge amounts of additional data of this nature. At that point in time, Genentech was very well capitalized, and it was able to take multi-year breaks in order to generate that data. The stem cell field and the embryonic stem cell field today is not so well capitalized mm-hmm. as Genentech was then. Uh, so requests for additional data um, can be more problematic from a business perspective, as, crippling, as, actually. as, as Geron uh, found out. Yeah. You mentioned um, that the stem cell field was not as well capitalized as Genentech was, for example, back then. Is there a reason for that? Is the investor interest not quite um, what you might hope it is? The stem cell field, unlike the monoclonal antibody field, has, uh, in, in my opinion, suffered almost from too much public popularity. 
I feel on the side of the field that I work, there is a continual battle against uh, stem cell tourism and products with anecdotal efficacy evidence, uh, which, frankly, I feel has been harmful to the field, harmful to patients, and harmful to healthcare overall. I feel strongly that non-FDA regulated products uh, use uh, both in the United States and the uh, rest of the world um, have caused uh, unrealistic public expectations of success, which as you know, subliminally at least translate to unrealistic investor expectations of success. And this was not uh, the case during the development of monoclonal antibodies. Sure. C- can we talk about some of those anecdotal stories? You, you, mean, you mean like... Um I mean, the one I was thinking was like Kobe Bryant apparently got stem cells put into his knee. He went, they had to go to Germany to do it, and then he was back playing within a certain amount of time, and people said, well, that's the promise of stem cells. That sort of stuff? Yes. The- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There was no control arm to that experiment. Yeah. There was no placebo arm to that trial. And I think uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And that might have been the case there. I think so. Or there could have been a hint of efficacy, and there could be something in whatever cells were reinfused to Kobe Bryant yeah. uh, or many, many other individuals. And you know, I know Wall Street analysts who have received similar autologous treatments and stood up on podiums and proclaimed the excellent effects they've received. But again, there's no placebo arm, there's no control to that experiment. And I actually think that regulatory bodies have been backwards in coming forwards uh, to ensure the safety of the of the public um, because uh, people who are ill are vulnerable and not necessarily uh, capable of making the best decisions yeah. for themselves and myself included, all of us included. Yeah. Um, this this is something else. We, we published an article um, on this when when Geron uh, began to divest its stem cell <coughs> assets, or said it would. And we took a look at their books and, and realized that they had not had much partnering money from pharma, and it looked like um, the interest from pharma may not have been there. Do you think that that is something that is applicable to the field? Do you think that um, stem cell companies are having trouble finding partners? 
I think there is plenty of interest in uh, stem cell companies from big pharma. There's there's a certain amount of hovering that that's been going on. Um, pharmaceutical companies and large biotechs certainly have sat on the sidelines of the field um, a lot of the time. But um, but why are they waiting for some to see some sort of results? They're always waiting, and uh, it, it's just a game of chicken, and nobody wants to be first and get egg on their face. To mm. perhaps overextend that analogy. Um, but I think that the uh, the interest has been there in my personal experience. You know, last year I worked at Capricor in Los Angeles, and Capricor inked a very significant deal with Janssen. And uh, during that period of time, uh, multiple other entities were interested in Capricor's platform. I, I will agree with you that pharmaceutical partnering is essential in this field. When I worked at Onyx Pharmaceuticals in the 90s, we had three, four, as many as five simultaneous pharmaceutical partnerships. And for young biotech companies, these are extremely beneficial interactions. They're not just beneficial from the pharmaceutical company opening the checkbook, but the experience that the pharmaceutical company brings to the table helps these biotech companies mature. Onyx Pharmaceuticals matured in a very accelerated fashion during that period. So I think that uh, stem cell companies who do not partner are not only missing out on dollars, but they are also missing out on the mature product development, product approval experience and discipline that a pharmaceutical partner can bring to the table. So when you start the, your embryonic stem cell company that uh -huh. you referred to earlier, right. my strong advice would be you know, partner early, don't just look at the deal in terms of the dollars arriving in your company's checking account. Uh, it's worth much more than that. I'm not. I'm not saying, um, or you're not saying, partner with anyone who comes to your door. But you're saying, um, just because they're not offering you 150 million up front and 200 million milestones beyond that, you need to take a look at what a partner can do for you in other areas. Stem cells is a is a, an exciting field. It's a scientific field. It's a it's a basic science field, and the corporate entities that come out of it tend to be, from a business perspective, very immature. So they will benefit, perhaps unusually from the intangibles of a pharmaceutical partnership which go beyond the, the, the check for the upfront a, payment. A guiding hand, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. And pharmaceutical companies want to provide that guiding hand. I want to ask you about CIRM, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Yes. And what, what role they play in this field? They have a big role in California, for sure. Uh, I think CIRM is uh, going to be regarded as an institution which met its goals. I think there's a little bit of nervousness at the moment that all of this money has been poured into California institutions, companies and universities especially, and now we are sort of nervously waiting to see whether the long-term or medium-term economic impact and product development impact is really going to happen. Where's the fruit, kind of? Yeah. I think, uh, I think that nervousness is understandable at this stage in the game. Um, and I also think that it is going to happen. I think there were signs of uh, companies moving resources into California, uh, which will benefit the California economy. And I think that the, the, the economic growth will happen. I understand the nervousness. SIRM is obviously coming toward the end of at least the first phase of its existence. What the subsequent phases will comprise, we don't know yet. And I think that uh, whether or not they're as significant as what's preceded, 
they will uh, it, it will be looked back on as something which achieved its goals. Yeah, and, and this first phase um, is identifying which companies they want to fund and then funding them. Correct. Yes, I mean that's part of what CERM did. It's also there was significant investment in the academic sector as well. Uh, but I think that investment was interesting because it was twinned to this corporate development and the work that's going on at the UC campuses at Stanford and so on and so forth is now much more oriented towards spinning out uh, technologies which will benefit patients, uh, which will result in INDs being filed, and you know, much more importantly than filing INDs ultimately will result in drugs being approved yep. and commercialized. If I, again, we're now this stem cell company that I'm personally building. If I came to you and said, I'm going to start a company, uh, where should I locate it? Would you tell me California, specifically because CERM is out there? I think that rationale is, is now diminishing as the big spending of CERM is also now diminishing. Mm-hmm. I think California has always been a fantastic place to do biotech. I think other hubs around the country, the classical hubs of Boston, D.C., Seattle, and so forth, uh, remain very good places for that. Uh, Part of the problem with a field like stem cells is the high level of specialist education that is required, and there is no doubt in my mind there was a big focus of that in California. So I think I would counsel you to uh, base your biotech company in California, but decreasingly because of some being located there as well. Right, okay. So I, I wanted to ask about, uh, we're going back to our one historical example, which is Geron. Was there an issue with the FDA on GMP manufacturing of those products or, or not for the, for the phase one? No, I think the, uh, the Geron IND, the, the CMC section, the chemistry manufacturing con- and control section, as, it, as it's historically referred to, uh-huh. The CMC section of that R&D uh, was uh, relatively unremarkable. There was some dialogue with the FDA uh, during the filing of the IND and immediately after the filing of the IND. Uh, but in my personal experience, that interaction was well within guard bands uh, of, of normal. Obviously, um, it was a phase one type manufacturing process and perhaps um, equally importantly, uh, but less often talked about, the analytical characterization of the product was uh, at a phase one level. And well, Can you uh, explain what that means? You mean it's yeah. a small amount? So the process was uh, being executed uh, on a small scale. The mm-hmm. Geron GMP facility was uh, a relatively small facility. And the process, as submitted in the IND, uh, could not be scaled up to uh, run a phase three trial or launch. Um, a couple of points. Geron was fully aware of that. The FDA doesn't care about that. Mm. That's not the FDA's problem. That's the, the, the company's problem. And Geron, uh, by cell therapy company's standards then, which is now some years ago, um, had invested considerably in plotting out uh, an engineering path to scale up and an engineering path to commercial manufacturing. Now, the problem with scale up of any drugs manufacturing, be it a small molecule, a monoclonal antibody, a cell therapy, is when you scale the product, did you change the product? Mm-hmm. 
that is the you know the fundamental problem one of the fundamental problems which pharmaceutical companies look at when they look at early stage when they look at your company is can this be taken all the way in taking it all the way to the you know the 10,000 liter Genentech style tanks in Vacaville right. uh, will it be the same material what that comes down to is your analytical characterization of the product so that you can show in vivo in vitro preferably in vivo if necessary uh, that yes, you're you're still making apples and you're not making oranges um, now. When when investors are looking to invest in in companies, and especially if those companies are pushing um, a new front of science, they often say that they're looking for and you know what's the unfair advantage that this product brings that other companies or other I'm sorry other products do not have. Do stem cells have an unfair advantage? And if so, what is it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and. The favorite question of venture capitalists and even private equity type investors, uh-huh. they're, they're not interested in you having a fair advantage. They're interested in you having an unfair advantage. Well, the, uh, the answer is, is pretty obvious, is that cell therapies are cells. You know, the functionality of a cell, the potential functionality of a cell, is many, many orders of magnitude greater than the potential functionality of a mere molecule. Mm-hmm. So the name of the game for the industry in this regard is to find indications where the standard of care and current drugs in development uh, are just not potent enough to supply the functionality that's needed. There's a couple of uh, there's a couple of ways you can describe this. One is regenerative medicine, where the cells are providing essentially a transplant of some nature. They are replacing the defective tissue in some large quantity. So, for example, in cardiovascular disease, if contractile cardiomyocytes are used, you're essentially bolting on a contractile unit to the heart. The other sort of cell therapy is more subtle and more catalytic in nature, where persistence of the cells itself is perhaps not needed, but the initial... Uh, infusion of cells will provide signaling which goes beyond that which can be provided by a small molecule ligand or or even a monoclonal antibody. The signaling may be uh, based on secreted molecules, of which there may be, frankly, dozens. It may be based on some larger entity like exosomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may be based on direct cell-cell contact and will probably result in the activation of some previously latent cellular compartment uh, within the patient, probably a stem cell activation event itself. But this is, the, this is the potential unfair advantage of this sector, that cells are potentially enormously more efficacious than any small molecule. Hmm. How, how best to phrase this? But it seems like in following this industry there are always... Um areas that are, are just right on the edge, just almost about to break through. And, and you can say that about gene therapy, although that, you know, maybe that is happening with gene therapy now. Um, is, is stem cells, is the stem cell research area one of those where we could be right on the edge of it breaking through now, but we could also be having this conversation 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's, there's another way of asking that question. What does the stem cell, what does the cell therapy field need to hit the big time? Why hasn't there been this killer phase three trial with the uh, efficacy boost, as you put it, right. that knocks this, this field um, out of the ballpark? 
Um, we're all the, the product of our own education and our own experience, but in, in my opinion, one critical tool is this issue of manufacturability. And the phrase that I have heard that I like the most here, that I really wish I'd invented myself, but unfortunately didn't, was we, we previously talked about the chemistry manufacturing control sections uh -huh. of R&Ds, the CMC sections. The phrase is, it's the CMC, stupid. And based on many of my interactions with investors, pharmaceutical partners, potential pharmaceutical partners over the last few years, a very interesting theme emerged from these meetings. Yes, we all want clinical efficacy, and we want those, that efficacy boost. But if you ask these individuals, well, you know, these CMC problems, let's just do a thought experiment with regard to partnering this product, investing in this company. Let's pretend that all of the CMC problems have been solved, that you can do cost-effective manufacturing of this product at a scale, at a, essentially a limitless scale, which matches the, the blockbuster indication which you're thinking of, of targeting. Mm -hmm. So the pharmacoeconomic problems are solved at the same time as the manufacturing and the quality and the analytical problems. Universally, those individuals completely change their tone. They say, oh, well, in that case, that changes anything because we can design this clinical trial because we can distribute it to the village hospital as well as the tertiary care center. And that will transform this field. The manufacturing toolbox is there. I think CIRM and ARM, the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, mm -hmm. and other bodies have done a tremendous job in defining uh, what needs to be in that toolbox. And now those tools need to be reduced to practice. Um, it's the CMC stupid right <laughs> this is uh, i'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here but again here's the company that i'm starting it's human embryonic stem cells i come to you you're a consultant and i say what I, what, are, what are the first things that i need to do right now can you give me three or four things that i need to do right now if i'm starting my company if i want to have success you know five six years from now the first thing you need to do i assume you probably have a disease field in mind sure is conduct uh, a rigorous ruthless pharmacoeconomic analysis of what the field can afford in terms of a new drug. Mm. And if a $100,000 drug is acceptable, that's fine. If a $10,000 drug is acceptable, that's fine too. If a $1,000 drug is acceptable, well, that will definitely change the way you approach solving this problem. Mm -hmm. When you've done your pharmacoeconomic analysis, you then need to look around and decide whether a cell type, which can be produced from an embryonic stem cell line, uh, is around. Do you need embryonic stem cells to be the source cell for this therapy? There are many reasons that you, you may. Obviously, the fundamental one is the potentially infinite scalability right. and the potentially uh, infinite uh, number of phenotypes you can derive uh, from embryonic stem cells. Uh, once you have those two pieces of the puzzle, then you need to ensure that your pharmacoeconomic analysis can be matched to your cost of goods analysis and your ability to produce consistently and safely uh, this future drug. That's interesting because I, I feel like if you'd asked that question or that you'd answered that question, not you, anyone would answer that question 15 years ago, they would have said, get the best scientists behind you um, start patenting immediately, whatever, they would not have had this sort of pricing focus 
Something really interesting has happened in the healthcare field in the last five or ten years. For the first time in the history of the planet, we can make more efficacious drugs than we can afford. In medieval times, when willow bark was the only effective drug around, you could spend the GDP on boiled up willow bark and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't spend enough money on drugs that actually worked in those days. Uh, not enough drugs existed. But now, uh, with many drugs costing six-figure dollar sums per treatment course and actually having some efficacy, any individual, any of us now, are looking forward to a future where we will be able to spend, if we have the money, more than what we earn during our lifetime on drugs that actually work. Yeah. This has not been a problem before, and this is why pharmacoeconomics is becoming such a focus for pharmaceutical companies who've seen this train coming down the tracks a lot longer than, than most yeah. of us, to be honest. And it's a very emotionally problematic issue to grapple with, the fact that you know, there is actually something out there which could benefit you if you could afford it, and the vast majority of the world's population, you know, let alone second and third world, will never be able to afford it. I think um, Willow Bark's a good name for a company. That's what I'll, that's what I'll call it. Uh, I, that's it. I, I appreciate you coming in, giving us your time today, and um, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Those were very interesting questions, and thanks. I hope my answers were useful. Oh, they're great. They're great. Okay, I hope that was useful. I actually found it useful and informative. So thanks to Anthony for taking the time to come into our little studio. And I'd like to thank the Midwest Quiet for again letting us use their music in our podcasts. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you're looking for more of our podcasts, including our First Rounders series, you can find them in iTunes and on Stitcher by searching Nature Biotechnology. And you can find them on our podcast homepage in our archives. And that is all. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.